Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Beetles are bugs you love to hate if you're trying to grow cukes or flowers in your garden, like Asiatic lilies or roses. Coming up, we'll hear about an exhibit that may change your mind. We'll speak to a photographer whose work is now featured at the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. It's called Beauty and the Beetle. That's later. First summer's here, and that means the growing season is picking up. What questions do you have about what to plant this time of year? Are you running into problems in your garden? Gardening expert Charlie Nardozzi is back on Where We Live today. You can join the conversation. Email where we live at WMPR.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Now I want to welcome Charlie Nardozzi, horticulturist, author, and host of the Connecticut Garden Journal, which airs Thursday afternoons at 3.04 on WNPR. He's joining us from the studios of Vermont Public Radio in Colchester, Vermont. Hi, Charlie. Welcome back. It's great to be here, Lucy. So far, our summer has been pretty hot and somewhat cool with a lot of rain. How does this weathered variation translate in the garden? Well, the plants are, are trying to figure it all out, you might say. You know, they kind of get it off to a good start, and then we get a hot spell and slows them down, and they get some more rain, and they keep going. A lot of the perennial flowers are doing really well. Uh, they've liked that cool weather that we had earlier with a lot of rain, and so we're getting that English garden, that English cottage garden effect, that beautiful lushness with a lot of flowers, peonies blooming, irises blooming. Um, so that's going to continue for a little while. But on the downside, if you're a warm season-loving kind of flower or vegetable, like a melon, for example, uh, you've been waiting for some hotter weather. We've had a few little stretches there, but nothing really consistent. So, How do those cooler temperatures translate to the pollinators, our, our bees, for example? Well, during those cloudy, cool weather, they're not going to be flying as much. So uh, hopefully they've, they've done their pollination duties back in May when things were flowering, the apple trees and other kind of fruit trees are, are blooming. Um, the fruits that I've seen in my yard are doing very well. So the pollination has happened. There was enough warm weather and sunny weather for the bees to get out there to do their pollination activities. Um, but if you're noticing you're not getting as much fruit set on your uh, berry bushes or on your trees, that might be one of the reasons is that that cool, cloudy weather thwarted them a little bit. Now, we're also hearing that the strawberry season is delayed by a couple of weeks. Should we expect that with the blueberries to come next month, too? Well, again, it kind of depends on the weather. You know, it's going to pop back up here this weekend, get back up in the 80s, close to 90 again. So, you know, if it can stay consistently warm for a while, then the blueberries will kind of catch up and, and everything will start um, really kind of being more on schedule. So um, I would not say that it's definitely going to be slow for the blueberries, but uh, definitely because of the, the cool weather earlier, these strawberries are a little bit later this year. And we'll get some advice from you in a little bit about uh, growing berries. But what should people be planting right now? Really, you can be planting almost every month during the summer uh, to get some things growing. So this time of year, like I'd mentioning, uh, those warm season crops, the ones that really like the warm soil and the warm sun, uh, the melons, watermelons, cantaloupes, uh, okra, for example. You're just in Africa. You've probably <laughs> seen a bunch of okra uh, growing. Uh, things that really like the heat, those are the kind of crops you can be putting in the ground now and should be putting in the ground now. Now, I'm a big flower person, so when we were talking a lot about uh, vegetables, and again, we mentioned uh, berries earlier, but what about flowers? What should we be putting in the ground? 
Well, you can be planting any of those uh, perennial flowers now. You know, this time of year, everyone gets very enticed by the, the things like the peonies and the irises, the things that are blooming now, the echinaceas and be coming along, all of those kinds of flowers. Um, certainly, uh, going to a local garden center, picking out some things. You know, you can take a look at your perennial flower garden right now and see where the holes are. Uh, you can see what's filled in, what's spread around in the different areas of your garden, uh, where there's certain spots that things maybe died back or just are not doing so well, and kind of put some substitute plants in there. So this is a good time of year to do a little touch-up in your perennial flower garden. And as far as annuals go, you know you can put any of those in at this time. Everything from the lantanas to the zinnias to the cosmos to marigolds, whatever it is, uh, you can pop those in containers and raise beds. Um, and again, those are nice filler plants for a perennial flower garden if you have some spots where the color really isn't popping like you'd like, or you just want to have a little more color throughout the summer and fall on a consistent basis. Annuals are great for that. Now, greenhouses are full of choices. Are you going to get bargains on the annuals? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot of greenhouses are trying to clear out their stock of vegetables and annual flowers. So you're going to see a lot of sales, Uh, definitely hanging basket sales, six-pack sales, eight-pack sales. Uh, So, yes, if you're a a good economy shopper, you want to get out there and get some good deals, this is a good time to do that. You mentioned baskets. Um, Some of the uh, arrangements that you see at the greenhouses are beautiful, but they're a little pricey. If someone wanted just to create their own container for their porch or for their patio, what plants do you recommend, these annuals? Well, one way to really get a nice container that pops and to get the most from the space that you have is do a technique, a planting technique called a thriller, filler, and spiller. And this is a technique where you're maximizing the amount of space that has flowers in it. So thriller means you want to get a tall plant to sit right in the middle of your container. So this could be something like some of those ornamental fountain grasses, for example, or something a little more exotic like a formium. Something that has those lance-like leaves to it, stands up pretty tall. could even be a canna lily for that matter. And then around that plant, you want to put what we call filler plants. And these would be more rounded plants that would fit in under the base of that thriller plant. So they could be things like uh, some of the snow mound artemisias or the profusion zinnias or some uh, salvias or some marigolds, something that's going to have maybe a foot or so uh, height to it and fill out really nicely. And then the final piece of that would be what we call the spiller plants. And those we put around the the pot edge. And these would be ones that would cascade, like the scavolas and the calabrocoas. I always think they sound like Italian sausages. (laughs) And uh, petunias and anything that's going to be cascading, alyssums, lobelias. So what ends up happening when this really matures is that you have this this container that has the height of a couple feet up in the air with those beautiful thriller plant, a nice middle to it that's all filled out, and then those cascading annuals down to the ground. So literally two or three feet, you have nothing but flowers and color and interest. So we're, we're going to tweet that out. Thriller, filler, spiller for container, for containers. And Charlie, have you uh, trademarked that phrase? Oh, no, no. That's been around for a while in the horticultural world. We're getting a tweet from a listener, Charlie. Peaches from the tree started growing from a peach pit in the compost in 2010. So an interesting way to, to start a start a, a fruit uh, tree uh, in your garden. Apple trees, is it too late to plant those? Oh, no. Uh, any of the fruit trees, is a good time to plant those as well. You know, a lot of the fruit trees, what they need is moisture, and, and that's really key. And we got, a, obviously, a lot in the spring, and so the, the moisture in the soil is still pretty even. Uh, but the, also the key is that if you plant them now this time of year is to keep the roots nicely moist throughout the growing season for this first year. And there's a number of ways you can do that, um, certainly adding a, um, some mulch around the base of that plant so that the moisture stays in the soil, doesn't dry out during our hot and dry periods that we always get in the 
summertime. Uh, that's a nice way to do it. But there's another thing you can add, and they're called gator bags. Gator just like the alligator. Um, and they are plastic bags that you fill up with water, and they wrap themselves around the trees. You've probably seen these. A lot of public works and parks departments will use these when they're planting shade trees and, and, and street trees. And these bags, you just fill them up with water. They can hold like 20 gallons of water, and they slowly ooze out the water out of these uh, little holes in the bottom. So you can just fill it up and then leave it for three, four, five days and not have to worry about it. And that way you're ensuring you get a nice consistent supply of moisture to the root system for those trees so they really can grow. We know now that the drought advisory in our state has been lifted, but what are some tips for people to be watering where um, maybe, maybe having more rain barrels and how you set up the sprinkler systems in your garden? Yeah, so if you can uh, save some water by uh, collecting it off your gutter system you, with rain barrels, that's always a great way to have water on hand in case we do get some more drought as the same. You know, you always do. We're going to get dry periods in July and August where there'll be a, a weeks where it doesn't rain and it's hot and it's windy and, and plants are, are suffering a little bit. So if you can accumulate some of that water in barrels and then you'll have that to uh, put on those plants, that'll be a nice way to do it. I mentioned before about mulch. That's always a nice thing to do. Uh, but another way to really make sure your plant can withstand a dry period in the summer is to do really deep watering. And I always say you want to water infrequently and deeply. Most people come home after work and they get the hose out with the, spray, with the little nozzle and they're just kind of spraying the garden down. And that might be nice for little seedlings. But once those plants have good root systems, you really want to spend a little more time watering and do it so you soak down at least a good 8 to 10 inches in the soil. And what that'll do is that the roots will follow that water down and they'll be really deeply established so that when we come into July and August and it gets dry, they'll have those lower reserves of water that are deeper in the soil to help them get through that kind of drought period. So it might mean instead of doing that daily, maybe once or twice a week, you spend a little more time really soaking that water in with your hose or with a sprinkler system. Now, Charlie, our listeners know you because you're the host of the Connecticut Garden Journal. Uh, they can catch that Thursday afternoon at on 3.04 here at WMPR. But on our website, we often will have um, your Connecticut Garden Journal tips posted as well. And um, we talk about peonies, we talk about roses, but how about lavender? What should we know about that that herb? Well, lavender is coming into its own, too, and there's some great lavender farms in Connecticut. You can go visit and see not only these beautiful fields, you feel like you're walking in Provence. <laughs> you see these beautiful fields of lavender, but they also, of course, lots of lavender products, too. Uh, lavender does grow as a perennial in our area, and it does really well. Uh, you just have to get the right varieties. So there's a certain varieties that are more winter-hardy than others, and those tend to be the English lavenders, like Munstead is one and Hidcote is another one. So look for those varieties when you're thinking of growing lavender. And then lavender likes a lot of sun. Think the Mediterranean. A lot of sun, kind of dry periods through the summer, and kind of moisture in the winter. But they also need really well-drained soil. So if you have a clay soil situation or a place where you're thinking of growing lavender but it's very exposed and it's really heavy soil, may not be the right location. Um, the best places, of course, is somewhere where it's protected from the northern and western winds and has a nice kind of a sandy loam soil so it's really well-drained. And the other thing you can do to ensure that it makes it through the winter is just put some bark mulch on it, say around end of November, early December, just to protect the crown of the plant. Even if it dies back a little bit in the winter, you can cut those back really severely, and they'll regrow and have those beautiful lavender flowers for you next June. You mentioned the hardy varieties. What about the dwarf varieties, and can you put them in containers? 
Uh, yes, you can put lavender in containers, too. Uh, anytime you put lavender in a container, of course, because we have such severe winters, you're going to want to protect it in the winter. So uh, mix it in a nice-sized container with regular potting soil. Maybe add a little time-release fertilizer uh, just so it keeps staying nice and green and lush. Uh, and then come fall and winter, that's when you want to put it in a basement or a, a, a garage or a shed, somewhere where it's not going to get much below freezing or too much below 20 degrees in the winter. Uh, that way, the roots will not freeze solid and the plant will be able to come back again next year. We're getting another tweet from a listener. Christina writes, I'm struggling with okra again this year. Uh, they started them in the greenhouse, planted them Memorial Day, and now the plant is disappearing every time she goes out to water. She has no idea what's getting at it. Ideas, treatment, and she loves hearing you on WNPR, Charlie. Oh, great. Thanks. Uh, yeah, well, okra likes a lot of heat. That was one of the ones we were mentioning earlier in the show, uh, liking a lot of heat and a lot of warmth. So and I would not hesitate to actually reseed them now. We still have a good three months of growing. And once the temperatures get really warm and the soil's really warm, you'll see plants like okra will really just kind of take off. As far as what might be attacking it, there's also there's a, little worms in the soil called cutworms. And these will go after a variety of different kinds of plants, broccoli plants, pepper plants, uh, and things like okra. And what they do is this is a little subterranean worm that comes up at night and it just wraps itself around the stem of the plant and chews through it. And the plant just kind of flops over it and dies. Uh, and they're only really going to be this time of year, really in the spring, early summer, where you see them happening. Then they'll go through their different stages of life and, and they'll kind of disappear. So um, I would say go ahead and replant. Uh, go ahead, put some seeds in the ground. Don't give up on your okra right now. Maybe raise the beds up a little bit so they have good drainage to them. Um, but also, on the other hand, if it doesn't rain, if we get a, a dry period here, make sure they stay well watered too. Do you have a gardening question for Charlie Nardozzi and not sure what to plant in your sunny or shady backyard? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I wanted to ask you, Charlie, before we head to break, uh, the roses are spectacular uh, this time of year. I know um, you're from Connecticut, so Elizabeth Park uh, is always a, a mm -hmm. great place to visit yeah. in June. I'm always curious, though, about which roses you're supposed to deadhead and which ones you just leave um, as is. Well, it really is a more of an aesthetic preference than anything else. You know, I always like to keep like the species roses, the Rosa rugosas, for example, um, or the sweet briar roses that have beautiful hips on them. I like those, you know, do their flowering thing and then let the rose hips form because the rose hips are beautiful in and of themselves, especially when we get towards September and they turn a brilliant orange or a brilliant red color. So if the rose variety you're growing has nice hips, <laughs> you might want to just <laughs> leave those flower, uh, dead flowers on there and let them go uh, beyond that. If, on the other hand, you have a hybrid rose, a hybrid tea or a floribunda or one of those roses that just keeps pumping out flowers all summer long, I would say go ahead and deadhead those. They tend not to have the beautiful hips to them and you want to get more flowers. So by deadheading, you'll encourage more blooms. And I don't want to forget about the peony. They're looking really lovely this time of year. Yes. But the tree peony, tell us about that. Well, you know, most people know about the herbaceous peony, and that's the one that dies back to the ground every uh, winter and, and grows back up and it's flowering now. But there is another type of peony called the tree peony that actually grows into a small shrub, and it has a woody structure to it, and it's a really cool plant. And it's more rare. You don't see it as much, but I would really love to see people using it more and more in the landscape. The nice thing about these tree peonies is they are more architecturally interesting because they're a shrub. They have big flowers on them, flower a little bit later than the herbaceous 
peonies, and they have the color yellow. If you notice all those herbaceous peonies that are blooming around, you'll see reds, you see whites, you see pinks and corals and bicolors, but you don't see yellow. That's a color that's been hard to find in the herbaceous peony world. The tree peonies have that color, so you can grow that one uh, in your landscape to have that beautiful flower. If you don't want to wait for a tree peony to grow into a, a big peony and get that color yellow, you can get what we call the Ito hybrids. This is a cross between the herbaceous and the tree peony, and it has different colors, including yellow. Uh, kind of grows with those big flowers like the tree peony, but dies back to the ground like an herbaceous peony. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Horticulturist and author Charlie Nardozzi is with us from Vermont Public Radio. We'll take more of your gardening questions next, including succession planting and pest control. This is where we live. It was just a little summer shower It didn't even last an hour In the garden, in the summer, in the rain This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're celebrating summer with a show focused on gardening. Horticulturist and author Charlie Nardozzi is with us. You know him as host of the Connecticut Garden Journal, airing Thursdays at 304 on WNPR. I want to start with some listener calls now. Deborah's calling from West Hartford. Deborah, you're on the show. Hi. I yeah, live in West Hartford where there's a lot of clay soil, and I have one particular area in my backyard that's extremely heavy clay very difficult to work and I would like to plant things in it, shrubs and some flowers of some kind and create like a woodland garden. And I was wondering if you have any suggestions. Yeah. So um, if I, I forgot if you said that was a shady area in the back of her yard, but if it is, uh, certainly uh, native plants that would grow well, some of the ferns that grow uh, really nicely in kind of that clay soil, they would do pretty well in there. And then you start looking at some of the spring ephemeral plants, uh, the, the trilliums and the trout lilies and, and a lot of those kinds of plants, columbine, wild columbines. Um, those can be... Uh, put in there for a little bit of color in the spring. Uh, so those are some of the options that you can do for native plants in that kind of area. If you really have heavy clay soil, though, it's going to limit the palette that you have as far as what kinds of plants you grow. So one of the suggestions might be creating a little bit of a raised bed with some imported soil, some topsoil and compost mix. So that will give you a wider range of plants that you can grow in those areas. Uh, they could be, again, native plants that would be more woodland plants uh, that would fit in there, or you can start mixing in things like rhododendrons and azaleas and some of the hostas and some of the other kinds of shade-loving plants, astilbes, those kinds of things. Uh, having good soil is really going to go a long way for any plant to survive much better. Now, Charlie, you mentioned rhododendron and azaleas. Um, the peak is uh, past now. What should we mm -hmm. do with these bushes in terms of anything that we should be doing with the soil now? Good question, Lucy, because this is a great time of year to do some pruning of your rhododendrons and azaleas. Because after those flowers fade, you'll start seeing there's a lot of new growth coming out. Uh, this is a good time of year to do a little restructuring and repruning of them so you can bring down the height of them. One of the issues I know a lot of people have is that, especially those large leaf rhododendrons, they get too big for a space. My mother used to have one by her house and it was just kind of huge and every year we'd whack it back and every year it'd grow back up again. So you can actually cut rhododendrons and azaleas back pretty severely. 
and they will re- regrow from old wood and eventually start flowering again. It may take a couple of years, but they'll come back to be a nicer size shrub and something that has nice flowers on it and a more manageable plant too. I think I've read that they like peat moss in their soil. When do you put that on? Yeah, so any uh, rhododendrons, azaleas, any of those plants in that family, even hydrangeas for that matter, like a more acidic soil. And so you can't put peat moss in when you're planting them, and that's a good idea for soil uh, water retention and drainage. But uh, really the way to lower the pH in your soil, if you have a pH that's too high for those plants, is to add sulfur. And you can go to a garden center and get garden sulfur. It usually comes either in a powder or it's easier actually to get it in a pelleted form. It's much easier to use that way. And putting it in the spring and the fall around the drip line of that plant to lower that pH. You want to get the pH down to a more acidic area, down around 6 or maybe even into the 5s. Seven is neutral for those who are kind of following where the the range is. And, of course, you always want to do a little bit of a soil test, too, before you do any of this because you may already have acidic soil in your yard and just don't know it. Um, Of course, one way to find out is if your rhododendrons are growing well, it's probably a good soil for them. Horticulturist and author Charlie Nardozzi with us from Vermont Public Radio Studios in Colchester. Uh, Suzanne's calling from Hamden. Suzanne, you're on the show. Hi. I have a pink and a white dogwood in my yard, and this year there were just very, very few blooms. I don't know, the tree looks fine, the leaves look fine, but there were very few blooms. And my neighbors, who also have dogwood trees, they look just fine. So I'm wondering why my trees were so lacking in, in blooms yes. this season. Yeah, why me? <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, right. Uh, you might want to take a look at the bark of your dogwood trees. You know, dogwood get different insects and diseases, and one is a scale insect that will be all along the bark, and sometimes that will, will suck some of the sap out of those uh, trees and weaken them. And a weakened tree will be less likely to, to pop out some flowers for uh, the next growing season. So uh, one of the things that you might do is just kind of look along the bark and see if there's any signs of the scale, and then you can do some uh, spraying some horticultural oil to control those. Uh, insects that might be along there. Another thing, of course, is going back to the health of the dogwood tree. Dogwoods, like a lot of the spring-blooming trees and shrubs, they set their flower buds in the summer this year for next year. So making sure that the tree is healthy, maybe give it a little fertilizer, some compost, uh, maybe a balanced organic fertilizer to really make sure it's growing well, the leaves look healthy, the plant looks kind of lush otherwise, that will help it set some flower buds this summer so that next year, hopefully, you'll have all the flowers in your neighbor. Well, we hope they have one, too. <laughs> we'll take some more calls in just a few minutes. But I wanted to ask you, Charlie, about succession planting in the vegetable garden. How does that work, and what should we be planting that way? Yeah, so if you were right on top of your vegetable garden, uh, planting peas, for example, in April, and lettuces and radishes and things of that nature, you know, a lot of those will be, well, I know our radishes and, and lettuces are kind of winding up already uh, from that first planting, but the peas are coming into their own. But very soon, you'll have a whole bed that'll be kind of open, and it really, it's, it's only June, July here. So uh, you'll have a lot of opportunity to replant things. So with succession planting, the idea is to plant plants that, in beds so that you can have other plants coming right after. After them, and so you get two or three crops in one season. So, for example, if you did have peas, lettuce, and radishes in one bed, once you pull all those out uh, coming into the end of July, uh, you can plant beans, bush beans. You can plant till the end of July and still get a good crop of those. So that would be a good example of something that you can plant that time of year. Then, on the other end, when you have, say, you did beans and you pulled them all out in September and you're really happy with your crop, you still have time to plant some kale or some Swiss chard um, or some even 
late crop of radishes for the fall. So you'll have some plants going in a little bit later then. So succession planting can be done that way. And another way to do a succession planting is to mix and match plants that have uh, different growth styles to them. So for example, tomatoes are in now, but they're small plants. And if you space them properly, they should be two or three feet apart. That means there's a lot of space in between. You can sow arugula in there or any kind of mixed greens or some radishes again, or any kind of quick maturing Asian greens, things that will will grow up and you'll be harvesting within a a month or so. So you can have those crops growing between the the eggplants, the tomatoes, the peppers, those plants that are spaced far apart, the squashes. And then you'll harvest those before those other plants get big enough to shade them out. So you get two crops from one bed just by knowing the plant's different growth styles. We mentioned briefly berries earlier in the show. Um, I I see a lot of blueberries, uh, obviously not quite blue yet uh, on my uh, blueberry bushes. But what should I be doing to keep um, the birds and the deer and maybe possibly the stray bear from coming by and snatching those off? (laughs) Yeah, right. So, yes, the birds are getting very interested. I grow honeyberries. Now, honeyberry is a a very early berry. We've been eating them actually the last couple of weeks, but the birds love them, especially this time of year. So what we do is we put netting over our berries. So it'll be, whether it be a honeyberry, a strawberry as they're starting to come in, and the blueberries pretty soon, uh, we do some kind of netting over them so that kind of keeps the birds out. Other things you can do, though, that seem to be effective is use this holographic tape. This is a tape you can buy from a garden center, and it's kind of a silvery color to it, and you just stream it across where your berries are, whether it be a bed or some um, fencing, so that it flutters in the breeze. And what happens is by the fluttering the breeze, it reflects light back up, and it confuses the birds. So we, we put that out. We also put the hawk-eye balloons out. It's another thing you can find at garden centers. Where do you get? These, really? I've never seen yeah. that before. <laughs> well, you you check around, you'll okay. see it. I can give people some <laughs> online sources, too, okay. if they really want to find them. But uh, they look like beach balls, and they're yellow beach balls, and they have these eyes on them that are kind of painted. It's a Japanese idea they found worked really well. And the birds think that these are hawks. So you hang these up in your around your berries, and the key is to move them every few days. So move them one place or another so it looks like a hawk is checking out what's going on, and the birds stay away from that area because they think they're going to be in danger. So there's different things you can do, and even with blueberries, there's one little home remedy from Cornell that uses a grape-flavored Kool-Aid. So when you go to the grocery store, you see those individual packets for artificially grape-flavored Kool-Aid. Get four of those, mix them in a gallon of water, spray it on your berry plants pretty soon, just just before they start uh, turning the ripening color. And when the birds start eating them, they don't like the flavor of the grape Kool-Aid, and they leave them alone. We're talking gardening today on Where We Live with Charlie Dardozzi. Charlie's calling from New Haven. Charlie, you're on the show. Hi, good morning. I work at Lila Day School, and we've got a lot of different things going, but one of the things is we have a small greenhouse uh, with no fan or anything like that, and it gets really hot during the summer. And I'm just wondering what kind of things would be the best to be in there just in terms of the kids for smell, taste, color. Yeah, for the summer is what you're concerned about. Yeah. Yeah, summer's kind of hard in a greenhouse unless you have some kind of venting system because it gets really, obviously, really hot and very stagnant. You know, the air doesn't move very well. Uh, but you want to try to grow some, you know, exotic kind of things. Uh, yeah. Like peanuts. Peanuts, for example. Uh, you could try putting those in there. Uh, peanuts, of course, grow. They will grow in Connecticut. And uh, they need a long growing season, though, and a long hot growing season. So that might be a crop that might be fun thing for kids to play around with and see if you can get them to grow and actually have 
have those peanuts form underground. The only problem I've found with them is that the mice and the voles like them too. <laughs> so, so you might have to do a little protecting, uh, either putting them in containers in the greenhouse and protecting those with some wire or, or doing something to make sure the mice and voles don't get your harvest because the plants can look beautiful, but when you come to September and October, you want to really get those peanuts underneath. Uh, yeah, of course, and then there are herbs too. Herbs. Yeah, I, we're talking on the same well. level here. <laughs> Yeah, so there are definitely herbs, the Mediterranean herbs. We were talking a little bit earlier about lavender, but certainly rosemary does very well in that kind of greenhouse setting. The oreganos, the thymes, anything that likes a lot of heat, a lot of sun, uh, well-drained soil, those will do pretty well in those conditions. Carrie's calling from Stonington. Carrie, you're on the show. My question is about cilantro. I can grow, I've had great success growing pretty much everything, but almost all the time, I kill it. I kill cilantro. It looks great at the store. I bring it home, transplant it into a pot. I've tried different levels of light, different types of watering, and no matter what, it just dies. It bolts, and that's the herb that I use the most in cooking. And so I'm hoping you might have a tip for me. Sure. So when you buy it in uh, garden centers and nurseries, a lot of times you'll find that they put a number of different cilantro plants in one pot. And the temptation is, I don't know if you this is how you buy them, but the temptation is to pull that pot apart and take the individual plants apart and, and plant them individually. What you might want to try is just plant the whole pot. Don't even separate them out. And put them in, whether it be a container or a raised bed, make sure it's really well-drained soil. I use raised beds a lot for them uh, because they like a nice well-drained soil. And they have a bit of a, a kind of like a little tap root, so they want to be able to go down into the soil pretty well. But by not disturbing those roots, you might have a better chance to get them to really fill out and start growing. And with cilantro, especially if you have it in the garden, once you can get it to actually get to the flowering stage and set seeds, you will have cilantro forever because it sets seeds and it goes all over the place. And I I pick it out of our pathways. I pick it out of our beds. I pick it out of everywhere where it's self-sowed. So you might want to try doing uh, leaving it when you get it as a, a full plant with a lot of different little plants in that. Put the whole pot in the ground. No, take it out of the pot, but put the whole uh, container in the ground. And um, also make sure that it has really well-drained soil. Charlie, we're talking a lot about the things we love in our garden, but weeds are not one of them. And it, I've noticed that they're popping up more now with the weather. Um, is this something that people can work on this this month where they won't have to worry about it in August, September? Or is this something you just have to keep doing uh, as you see? Yeah, tomorrow. That would be a good time <laughs> to do it. <laughs> Actually, yesterday get right would have been that. a good time to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so with this weather, it's great weed weather. <laughs> you know, we get warm temperatures, we get rain, and then it get warm temperatures again. You're getting a lot of annual weeds starting to germinate. The lamb's quarters, the pigweed, the galansogas, the purslanes. And these are weeds that look very innocuous right now, but in another month or so, they'll take over your garden. So what I would suggest is go out tomorrow, early in the morning when it's a little cool still, get a, a hoe that has a small blade with a nice sharp um, edge to it, and just walk around your garden and just what I call scuffle. <laughs> you know, you're just going to walk around and you're just using that hoe to just cut right below the soil surface. And you're just doing it right around your plants, whether it be vegetables or flowers, whatever it is, just to cut the surface of the soil. What that's doing is it's cutting that tender roots of all those weeds that are starting to germinate. And then we get some warm weather or sunny weather and they'll die pretty quickly. If you do that now and do it pretty religiously now for you know the next couple of weeks or so, you'll find that you have very few weeds you have to worry about come July and August because the plants have filled in, they've shaded them out, they won't get more weeds germinating, and you've killed all that early population of weeds. Cheryl's calling from Plantsville. Cheryl, you're on the show. 
Yes, I have a question about my rhododendron plant. The water department wants to come in to reach some equipment, but they want to dig up the rhododendron plant because where they need to get it, their equipment is right at the root of the plant. And I said, not now, it's blooming. No, you kill the plant. They don't have an arborist, so I need to tell the management company or the board uh, when the water department can do this, and I would be willing to get a group of people together to get the plant back in the ground if that's possible, or is this going to destroy the plant? When should we do it, and what should we do to get it back in so it will live? And is this a big plant that's been in the ground a long time? Yes, it's been in the condominium complex for a long time. Okay. Well, it's it's right to the left of my staircase, so, you know, it's maybe three feet across. Okay, okay, so not too huge. It's about five, no, maybe four feet high. Okay. Uh, Yeah, so ideally, and the water department won't want to hear this, the best time to move it would have been in the spring, you know, as it it was starting to come out of dormancy. But if you, they have to do this work, and I understand that. So uh, what, if you can get them to wait till it's done flowering at least, then that would be the time to move it. So it'd be pretty soon, you know, very soon actually, that it'll be able to do that. And the key thing when you are going to move it right here in the growing season, when it's really actively growing, is make sure you really get a good-sized root ball when you dig it up. So try to dig up all around the edge. Try to get as many roots as possible. Move it to wherever you're going to transplant it. And I'm assuming, I'm hoping that you're transplanting it somewhere where it can stay and you don't have to move it back again because that will create even more stress for the poor plant. Uh, And you might even consider cutting it back a little bit too, especially if it's very lush and it's got a lot of growth on it because when you destroy some of those roots in the transplanting process, it's going to take away that root's ability to take up water to keep those leaves healthy. So you might have to cut back the top a little bit. But if you cut it back, get a good root system, keep it well watered all summer long, put it in a shady spot. If you do have to put it there temporarily, then move it back again. Put it somewhere where you can keep it well watered, put some mulch around it, and then try to move it back as soon as they're done with that work. This is where we live with Charlie Nardozzi here. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're taking your calls on gardening today. One more rhododendron uh, question for you, Charlie. Uh, this one's from Judy from Salem. Judy, you're on the show. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I uh, appreciate what you're doing this morning, and I uh, hope you have a great day. My question is, I have rhododendrons, and after they blossom, the leaves start getting yellow, and they get black spots, and they drop. Yeah, so the, the yellowing of the leaves, it could be a nutrient deficiency there. It could be that the soil is too heavy for them, so the, you know, the, the roots are dying back a little bit, so they can't take up the moisture to support those leaves. Um, the, black, the black spots on the leaves could be a sign of some diseases that are coming in, but it sounds like it might be more of a, an overall health problem of the rhododendron versus a specific disease that's causing that issue. So one of the things you can do is uh, putting some compost down around that plant, especially if it keeps coming back every year, but it seems like it has this issue. Um, the other thing you can do, of course, is if it uh, is small enough plant and it's easy to move to put it in a different spot. Maybe that's just not the right location with the soil and the light levels. And it might need a spot that has better drained soil and it gets maybe some morning sun and that's about it. The rest is shade. And that might be a better opportunity for that plant to really start thriving. If it does this every year, I would, th- I would probably lean to do that. And the best time, of course, to do that would be more towards April so the plant can have some time to recover. Uh, but you could do it after it's done flowering this year. Now, one more call before we head to break. Uh, Swati's calling from Guilford. Swati, you're on the show. 
Hi there. Um, thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, my husband and I have recently gotten into gardening, and unfortunately, the way our yard is set up, we can't garden in one area. We have it kind of spread out. And this year, what we're running into is some sort of critter. We presume rabbits um, have been eating our garden. Um, so we planted radishes. We have several squashes that we were growing from seeds. Um, and within the past two days, at least half of our crop has been eaten. And so um, fencing is a little bit more difficult for us because of how spread out our garden is. I was wondering if you had any other recommendations. Yeah, fencing is it'd be the best thing if you could do it, but I understand your situation where it's spread out. So you can try some different repellent sprays. Uh, they sometimes will work, and they can be anything with they have like rotten eggs in them or cayenne pepper in them. There's one that I use that works really well with animals. It doesn't smell great when you first uh, spray it. It's called plant skid, S-K-Y-D-D. That's a Swedish word that means protection. And what is in that uh, container is slaughterhouse waste. So when you spray it on, it smells like blood and not very nice, but it dissipates quickly. So, you know, spray it and then go away for a couple hours and then come back. (laughs) Once it dissipates, though, you don't smell it, but the animals still do. And and I've found that that's been really helpful and effective, and it lasts a while. Now, if you're growing a lot of vegetables, you might have a little inclination not to do something like that. Uh, So you might want to stick with the garlic sprays and the cayenne sprays. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Gardening expert and horticulturist Charlie Nardozzi will stay with us. Coming up, we're going to ask him about bugs, specifically beetles that plague your gardens. But first, a unique photography exhibit on view now at the Peabody Museum in New Haven. It's called Beauty and the Beetle. We'll hear from the photographer after the break. This is where we live. I mean, it must be high or low. That is your kind, you know. Tune in, but it's all right. That is, I think it's not too bad Let me take you down Cause I'm going to Strawberry fields Nothing is real And nothing to get hung about Strawberry fields forever This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Got plans this evening? Join me tonight at 6 at the Warner Theater in Torrington as Where We Live rolls out a new series called Making Her Story. I'll be interviewing prominent Connecticut women about their journey to success. Tonight, Cindy Bigelow, president and CEO of Bigelow Tea, will join us for the first Making Her Story. Again, that's at the Warner Theater in Torrington. More information at our website, WNPR.org. We've been focusing on garden questions as the summer gets going. This is the time when we dream about lovely flower beds or a bountiful crop of fruit and vegetables come fall. But pests can dash those dreams, pests like beetles. Before we get more advice from gardening expert Charlie Nardozzi on ridding your garden of bugs like Japanese cucumber and potato beetles, we wanted to learn a little bit more about an exhibit that might make you appreciate the insect On the phone with us now is William Guth, a photographer based in Bethany, Connecticut. His work is featured in the exhibit Beauty and the Beetle, Coleoptera in Art and Science, on view at the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History through August 6th. William, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. Good morning. Now, I mentioned you're a photographer. How did you get involved with this exhibit? 
Well, uh, the way I got involved, I was asked to uh, photograph beetles. Now, uh, typically in the past here in Bethany, I dreaded the uh, onslaught of Japanese beetles on my raspberries. Uh, needless to say, uh, I've been introduced to a whole new world of beetles, which I didn't realize existed. And so you started taking photos of the beetle specimens at the Peabody. Tell us about some of these specimens. Well, some of the specimens, uh, for example, there's a uh, African spotted flower beetle, which is uh, green uh, with white spots, and there's some orange down the side. It's just gorgeous. Uh, then there was a, uh, a scarab beetle from the Congo, which is, uh, has blue, uh, blue stripes uh, running the length of the beetle. And uh, I think my favorite was the uh, mountain stag beetle from uh, Malaysia. Um, it is just gorgeous. Uh, and I should point out that these uh, photographs, uh, we're taking uh, 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 specimens that are typically about quarter, half inch, uh, some three-quarter of an, of an inch, and presenting them on aluminum prints, which measure 40 by 60 inches. And so when you're doing this, uh, this macro photography, you're really able to see certain anatomical details that you might overlook if you walk through the Peabody and just look at the exhibit? Exactly. And uh, I should point out that uh, the, uh, my uh, co-presenter is a uh, New Haven s uh, sculptor named Gar Waterman. What he has done is uh, replicated the beetles in, uh, by welding pieces of steel, some of which were discarded uh, brake parts. And so we're showing uh, the uh, abstract uh, sculpt, uh, pieces of sculpture, along with my photographs, plus the actual specimens. And I should point out that uh, Gar and I are uh, going for the aesthetic. In, in other words, uh, if one looks at the actual specimen side by side with the photograph, uh, it's quite different, because uh, I'm trying to uh, uh, show the beauty uh, through, through the way I've uh, done the lighting and so forth. And with macro photography, you can really zoom in on the little hairs on their legs, the mandibles. Absolutely. And unlike a scientist looking through a microscope uh, that would see uh, uh, bit by bit, uh, probably like the blind man and the elephant, here uh, we can see at that uh, magnification the whole uh, specimen and then one spotlight of attention can focus on the individual parts in, in exquisite detail. Well, they sound like it sounds like a really interesting exhibit, William. Uh, what do you want visitors to take away when they see your photographs? What I want them to take away is that a beetle, it, it, it's a whole new world. It, in, in fact, uh, I think there's uh, uh, well, up, up close to 400,000 different beetles in the world. And what I want them to take away is not to think of a beetle as some uh, drab, creepy, crawling thing, but a object of beauty. And, uh, for example, at the, uh, uh, an eight-year-old uh, grandson of a, a woman at the uh, exhibit looked at a photograph and looked at a specimen and said, well, that's not at all uh, like your picture. So I took out on my uh, key ring a little LED light, and I 
I said, look, and, and I moved the light around the actual specimen, and it bloomed depending on the angle of the light. And so it, essentially, that's what I was uh, uh, doing with the pho- uh, photography. What I'd like them to take away is uh, Henry David Thoreau said, it's not what you look at that matters, it's what you see. So I, I would suggest to all your gardeners out there that on a rainy day that they come down to the Peabody and look at the exhibit, look at the variety of what they deal with. And I think when they come back to the gardens, they will see things in a different light, as it were. Well, thank you so much, William Guth. He's a photographer based in Bethany, Connecticut. His work is featured in the exhibit Beauty and the Beetle, Coleoptera in Art and Science, on view now at the Yale Peabody Museum of Natural History. His co-collaborator, New Haven sculptor Gar Waterman. Uh, William, thank you so much for joining us. And I wanted to go back to gardening expert Charlie Nardozzi. So a different perspective on beetles, Charlie. Uh, but we did mention, um, he did mention beetles on his raspberry. This time of year, you might see the Japanese beetles emerging. Uh, yes, the Japanese beetles will be coming out very soon. And, you know, uh, it's great that he's highlighting all these different beetles. And I always tell people with insects, because we always get really nervous about insects, you know, but 90, 95% of the insects out there are actually either beneficial or they're innocuous towards our plants. It's only a select few that really cause a lot of damage. So don't curse the whole group of Coleoptera or the beetles out there. Uh, but Japanese beetle is certainly one of those that everyone knows about. And right now, what's happening in the life cycle is that there's these little C-shaped grubs, white grubs that are in the soil that are right below the soil surface. They're going to be pupating very soon, and then they'll be transforming into the adult beetle that'll start flying around attacking 300 different kinds of plants, including raspberries, grapes, cherries, basil, etc., etc. So right now is a great time to control them, and the way you control them is to kill those grubs that are in the soil. And you can do that organically a couple different ways. You can try beneficial nematodes, and you'd have to go to a garden center to get these. And these are microscopic little wireworms that you would actually spray on the lawn areas around the plants that they love to feed on, because that's where most of them will be living. And they go down and they actually parasitize those grubs. And you want to do it in the evening, and you want to water them in really well. Ideally, you do it right before it rains. So if it looks like it's going to rain the next day, spray those nematodes down there. I've had some great control with that. Now, there's another one called milky spore powder or milky spore disease. And this is an actual disease that will infect those grubs in the soil. The only downside in Connecticut about that is that the soils are too cool in Connecticut for it to be really effective. It's much more effective if you go further south, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Maryland, places like that. But if you do want to try it, it's certainly uh, very effective in killing them once it kind of gets into the soil. And that's something that in warmer areas it actually overwinters, but you'd have to, in Connecticut, apply it year after year. Same thing with the nematodes. So that's a nice way to kind of get on top of the grubs. Uh, We're talking uh, again about some of the pests in the garden. We just have a couple of minutes. I just wanted to try to do a a, a quick uh, round with you, Charlie. Someone wants to know about her lilac trees. How does she manage them? They overgrow. Can you tell us uh, quickly? Uh, Well, right now is a good time to prune them back. And lilacs, just like the rhododendrons, can be pruned back fairly severely, down to a couple feet off the ground, and they will regrow and fill back out again. So this is a perfect time to do that. Any of those spring flowering shrubs like lilacs, you want to prune them from between now and probably early July, middle of July, because that's when, uh, after that, they're starting to set their flower buds for next year. So if you prune them in the late summer or fall, you won't get flowers next year. We were talking about uh, not all bugs are bad. Uh, Andy from Woodbridge was uh, calling in to let us know that, you know, many weeds are very edible. Can we talk through some of those? 
Oh, yeah. A lot of the ones I mentioned earlier on the show about uh, the uh, pigweed and the lamb's quarter and purslane, they're all edible. In fact, you can buy seeds of these from garden centers, <laughs> amazingly enough. So you can have them. And they're really tasty, too. Uh, lamb's quarters is a really great substitute for spinach and a lot of other greens. So do a little research. Make sure you get the right weed. <laughs> Don't want to be eating something that doesn't taste good. And you can try some of those out and actually let some of those just grow naturally in different patches of your garden so you have some wild edibles to make pesto and other kind of fun things. Uh, Rick from Hebron uh, loves plants. He had a weeping cherry tree for about 10 years, uh, bloomed fine every year, but this year it didn't do anything. He wants to know why. Well, it's a lot of reasons for why uh, cherry trees or any tree flowering or fruiting tree doesn't bloom. It could be uh, somehow it got zapped from the winter, even though we didn't have a very severe winter temperature-wise this year. Uh, sometimes the flower buds get zapped. Um, sometimes a tree might be stressed, too. So something like that, I would give it another year. Maybe t- treat it really well this year. As I was mentioning earlier on the show, it's setting its flower buds for next year by the summer. So put some f- fertilizer, some compost around it. Make sure it stays well watered. Make sure it's growing healthy. And then if next year, it's not really doing well, then you might consider a replacement. Uh, we talk, We didn't talk much about mosquitoes or ticks. Uh, we know, are there any plants that you can put in your garden with just 30 seconds, Charlie, that can help repel <laughs> these bugs? <laughs> oh, I wish I had an answer in 30 seconds. Uh, no, there really isn't any plants that will repel them. You know, there are some plants on the market that people say the mosquito repellent plants, they're, they're kind of geraniums with that citronella smell to them. If you rub them on your body, they'll work. Otherwise, not so much. Well, I want to thank Charlie Nardozzi, a horticulturist and author, host of the Connecticut Garden Journal, airing Thursday afternoons at 3.04 on WMPR, a great book that he has uh, right in front of me, Month by Month Gardening in New England, what to do each month to have a beautiful garden all year, great tips and tricks in this book. Charlie Nardozzi, always a pleasure. You joined us today from the studios of Vermont Public Radio. Thank you, Charlie, for your time. It's been great being here. Today's show is produced by Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.